Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at the LUEpodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division of U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. 100 times stronger than bleach, yet safe enough to drink, HOCL is the most important chemical you've never heard of. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skincare, wound care, pet care, disinfecting, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis growing with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at HOCLA.org. My guest today is Brett Puffenbarger. Brett is the co-founder and CEO of a bespoke advisory company called Good High Ideas, and their primary offering is due diligence and vetting. They also run a watchdog organization called Project Mongoose. Brett is also concurrently acting as VP of corporate initiatives for a blockchain startup called Multichain Ventures, focused on bringing blockchain to cannabis. Please join me in welcoming Brett Puffenbarger to the show. Thanks so much for being here, Brett. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So you're very active on LinkedIn, speaking to a lot of the bad actors in the cannabis industry and the houses of cards that exist out there. And what led you to take on that role? And what has that experience been like for you? So to tell you the truth, I started it out of almost selfish means because I had experienced a lot of the bad. I think a really telling statistic in the cannabis industry is that most people in cannabis last less than four months in their first role. And most people, something like 70%, have three jobs in the first two years. And I was a victim of that. My own career path in the cannabis industry followed that. And it got to a point where being in the industry, I only interact with others in the industry by and large. And I felt like it was time to take the water cooler talk that we all knew was true and give it a public face. And I think it was one of those things where there had been whatever you would call them, call out organizations before, something like the Blacklist or, or, or similar. And it always came off to me as an outside looking in. And I think something that we really wanted to stress is we're just like the people we're calling out. And oftentimes we've worked with them, for them, around them. And it's a an internal call to do better as an industry. Excellent. So what companies in the cannabis industry are actually doing things the right way that you think are setting themselves up for long-term success? Oh, man. I think that's a really uh, kind of a tough 
question to answer. It's a little easier to point out the bad than the good currently in cannabis. I'm a really big fan of the guys at Loom Cannabis. I've seen some really good things from them. I've seen some really good things from some of the Jushi Holdings subsidiary companies in different locations. I'm a huge fan of Leslie Engelking and their focus group, so the Federal Organization of Cannabis United Standards. I think those are the first three that come to my mind when I think, okay, here's an example of a mongoose that does the exact same things as the bad actors, but they actually do it the right way. For sure. So with that big a task, how do you envision cleaning up the cannabis industry? So our big goal is uh, we're collecting stories. We've got several hundred of them now, and, and they basically amount to whistleblower stories from every market, every market segment, every state that's currently legal. And our idea here is to eventually take it and give it an expert overlay and turn it into something like a field guide for the next generation of cannabis companies or cannabis professionals coming in. We're also doing a large chunk of investor advocacy, due diligence, vetting, that sort of stuff. Because in my mind, I think to really stop the bad, you have to start with the money. Because the more bad actors get more money and they screw over investors or they mess things up for the rest of us, the worst it is for the industry as a whole. And have you seen a dichotomy between bad actors coming from the, the traditional cannabis industry prior to legalization in, in various states versus the big mainstream institutional investors coming in or like the alcohol industry or tobacco industry coming in? Is it an all sides thing? Is, is it it's just like an individual basis? Everyone across the spectrum, there's bad actors from each group or, or, or any groups doing it better in general? So I think this would be something that the average person wouldn't consider, but I think by and large, the people coming out of the legacy market, the black market, the gray market, whatever fancy term we want to give it, are by and large better actors in this space. I think something along the lines of, you know, honor among thieves, if you will, or honor among criminals actually applies here. And I think the biggest criminals or the biggest bad actors in the space are actually the guys wearing boat shoes and blazers, not the guys wearing board shorts and upturned hats. And I think that's a unique thing to cannabis because let's call it like it is. We had an industry or a culture or a community before any of us were allowed to put it on our resumes. And I think the big thing moving forward for true success, and I've said this several times before in other places, is that we have to bring the two sides together in, a, in an equitable way for both sides. And I, I think that starts with acknowledging that what I call the chads, the suit and ties, mainstream industry guys that have come in have basically run roughshod over the other side. And I think in order to come together, we have to remember that there's two parts to this. There's the heart and the head. You know what I'm saying? There's the heart that comes from the community that was here well before. And now there's the brain power and the professionalism from the other side. And I think striking that, albeit precarious, but perfect balance between the two is our only true hope for longevity as an industry in all senses, not just the monetary sense of making money, but in the sense of quality products available for patients and consumers consistently and everywhere they're at. And so building off of that, how do you foresee smaller ventures surviving consolidation in the cannabis industry? And we have like Constellation and other uh, large alcohol and tobacco companies coming in with, you know, hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars to take over the future. So I think what we're going to see, particularly in the United States, is something more akin 
to the milk industry. And I know that sounds out there until you really look at the business model of milk. Milk industry has large regional production groups where it's individual farms that all consolidate into one larger group and then they work together with other regional groups. And I think that's something we're going to see in the future. I think a lot of these large institutional investments are actually failing. I, I think if you look at actual quarterly reports, actual data, like a good example would be in Canada, there's an excess of a billion milligrams of excess THC. And most of these mergers and acquisitions, at least from my view, are actually smoke screens. They're more akin to a sinking ship strapping on a new anchor than they are a sinking ship finding some new lifeblood and a lifesaver in their operation. So I think what's going to end up happening is we're going to watch these large companies who aren't ready for federal legalization, who aren't ready for a different business model and who are very much predicated on their little protectionist, isolationist, regulatory capture model to survive. I think a lot of them are actually going to fall by the wayside and these smaller to medium sized operators that can weather this storm for another few years will see a drastic change and an uptick in their viability as that happens. That's really cool. I think the milk industry is such a fascinating analogy. Most people really just jump to, oh, it's going to be like craft brewery or something of that nature. But yeah, I think when you're really drilling down, uh, there definitely seems to be like a lot more opportunities for what you're talking about so that smaller operators can keep things going. And then on the larger side with places like Canopy Growth and others, I see a lot of like high level like CFO and, and finance people analyzing the balance sheets, income statements, other financial reports, and basically you know, saying, I have no idea how this company is going to become financially profitable. And it's fascinating, too, because when you look at in the mainstream business world, mergers are always portrayed as being so sexy. And yet 70 or, you know, to 80 percent or more of them fail. There's like a huge amount of hope that like, oh, we're going to create these amazing synergies and stuff like that. But it doesn't seem like cannabis should be unique at all that like suddenly, oh, this is going to be the industry where mergers really work. And it does seem like you're saying they're just building, trying to stick assets together. But it's like when you do have such an excess it's a pump and of dump. poundage. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. You can see that if we want to get into some real details, go look at a publicly available company C-suite executive packages. If you really want to look at it and talk about a future projection, most most of these people knew exactly what they were doing ahead of time. They set up their pay scales and the way they would take payouts based in a way that basically shows anybody who knows what they're looking at that they're gearing toward failure. They know that they're going to fail and they want to take the personal payout. And who is going to get the shaft on that? It's consumers and investors. And I think it's an incredibly scary thing to sit back and realize that most of these people have built a business model on hockey stick projections and hype with no real backing to them. And I don't care which company it is, I don't care if it's US or Canada, heck, even some of the European countries, it's a, a terrifying thing to really sit back and look at it. And it's really funny because I think the industry, like the mid-level directors, vice presidents, people like that leadership level that isn't making the decisions but are beholden to pull off what the decision makers are making them do, are finally starting to wake up for it. I've been preaching the same message for several years now, and I finally feel like we're at a point where I no longer feel like the Alex Jones of weed or like Chicken Little running around <laughs> saying the sky's falling. And we're at a point where 
Now it's becoming a Pied Piper situation where new investors, new entrepreneurs into the space are well aware that they're walking into a den of snakes and they're prepared for it in a much better way. Yeah, it's amazing because it does clear crypto. It's just FOMO is a hell of a drug. And people see, oh, I was waiting on cannabis and now it's taking off. And so I got to jump in, even though people overlook like just crazy bad numbers to just think, oh, it could get better or legalization will make the hockey stick appear when in reality, like that's never been what the, the case is going to be the opposite. The hockey stick is going to go away with federal legalization in the United States. And it goes back to this. My favorite example of this, and I don't mind calling him out because I know he's never going to care what I have to say because he has enough money not to. But Bo Wrigley literally went in Forbes and said, we only want to play in markets with regulatory capture where we could stack the deck in front of us and stack it in our favor. And that's just not a long term plan. It's like, Somehow, these otherwise brilliant and amazing business people, these absolutely astounding investors, have gotten green rush blinders and they have no idea what's going on. And the sad part is they've created something that I call the grass ceiling, where the real people that really care about this and have real skills and want to transplant in the industry, because let's call it like it is. Everybody in the cannabis industry is a transplant. We came from somewhere else. I worked for Harley Davidson before I was in weed. You know what I'm saying? And like they've created this protectionist class where be damned if you speak up against the horrors that are happening within the industry. And I, I watch it every day, particularly on LinkedIn, people with killer resumes coming from amazing places are getting chewed up and spit out like it's their day job. The turnover rates, the, the lack of care for the effects on the people, the environment, the places that they're at, it's alarming in every way. And I feel like we're finally at a tipping point where the average person is learning these things for themselves and they're going, whoa, not everything is what it seems. Yeah, it's it's wild to read a lot of the stories people have on LinkedIn. And like you're saying with, you know, what you've gathered in effectively being like whistleblower reports, like I, I can't recall an industry in our lifetimes where it's been this prevalent. And I think, like you said, even when it was just back on the black market or back pre-legalization, even though people were operating illegally, there was generally a lot of better business practices um, or people were treated better just because you had to be because you were doing something illegal. And if you treat someone poorly, like they just go out and can narc on you or whatever. And now you've just got, you know, horrible labor conditions from actual on the cultivation side, but even just you could be a marketer and it just sucks like working for an MSO that all they're there to do is for the CEOs to get their cash grab and then jump ship before it goes down. 100%. I think that actually is probably a good segue into the blockchain idea, because I think crypto mirrors a lot of these same problems. But I think at the heart of it comes a potential solution in transparency and openness and being able to monitor things end to end and even tackle some of the financial burdens and stuff that have nothing to do with the bad actors in cannabis and have everything to do with this weird precarious state we're in between being legal and not legal or quasi legal or whatever silly term we want to add to it. It's a very weird and unusual place for an industry to be in. And I think if anything, it's the one place where we cannot draw a parallel to another industry where it is truly a unique, what do we want to call it? A unique place to be sitting. Indeed. So how do you think, what ways are you envisioning blockchain helping the cannabis industry? 
So I think the easiest way to break this down is to look at three of the major problems cannabis faces. One being, we're a regulated industry and we're gonna be a regulated industry forever. Maybe it'll be similar to alcohol, maybe it'll be similar to pharmaceuticals, but we need legitimate and functional seed to sale or seed to, to whatever recycling to consumer track and trace. We need the ability to track what operators are doing. And I think that the current technology that cannabis has accepted, something like metric, is somewhat akin to dinosaur technology. And something like decentralized ledger technology and blockchain is an answer. And it's an immediate answer that immediately answers the problems that come from that. I think another one is cannabis and hemp and, and the whole shebang here is very much predicated on, let me see your certificate of analysis. Let's put some money in escrow. Let me see a proof of funds. And I think something that comes from blockchain that's not quite as talked about is smart contracts, the ability to instantly validate these things, the ability to instantly interact with each other in a safe manner that's validated and understood. And everybody knows where they're at on the playing field is crucial. And then I think finally, the ability for cannabis operators to stop being predominantly cash and being able to use something like what we have at Multichain with AB 466, a closed loop tokenized in, uh, financial infrastructure is killer. The ability for them to take that money in, not have to worry about holding hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash on hand, and the ability to interact with each other in a safe, immediate, and effective manner is crucial for us to continue to grow. Yeah, I definitely think there's some interesting opportunities there for cannabis, especially to leapfrog essentially decades of development of whether it's tracking, whether it's using something like NFTs and smart contracts to, okay, now your certificate of analysis is just an NFT. You can place that into a smart contract. And then you have things like I've seen like nanotags, right? That they can spray nanoparticle and tracking nanoparticles onto cannabis itself that you then can literally track it. You could be in a dispensary. You could literally just point a little tracking gun at your white widow, whatever you want. And they'll say, oh, this was grown in X farm in the, at this time, it was harvested at this time. And all that information is right there. And then you can completely decentralize that. And then it yeah, skips all the, the past hundred years of how we've reshaped logistics and everything and can truly become like a 21st century industry. For sure. I think we're also at a place in cannabis where we've hit the brick wall of ingenuity where we, no matter how much technology prior to blockchain and the things it brings with it has been available, we still have the same key problems. And maybe it's me being a little bit of a, I don't know, a visionary or hopeful or even naive to some degree. But I honestly think if there is an industry that needs blockchain to succeed and needs it to really bring us up to a level that a mainstream industry would accept, it's going to be blockchain because if we're going to we can touch back on the the mergers and acquisitions and stuff and how this really plays into it because most of these mergers and acquisitions they position it as well we're going to get bought out that's our goal procter and gamble johnson and johnson coca-cola altria philip morris somebody's going to buy us and i always sit back and i wonder why would they the only reason I could see them buying them as they currently stand is if everything they said was legitimate. And the only way to know if everything they're saying is legitimate, in my mind, is some level of things that blockchain 
provide. So if I were in the other shoes, I would be wanting this full transparency before I invested billions, maybe even trillions, heck, who knows, of dollars into this industry. Because as it stands right now, if I were the guy sitting on the other side, if I were your consumer packaged good guy, if I were your craft foods or your Procter and Gamble guy, I would laugh most of these cannabis executives out of the room. Yeah, definitely. So what do you think is going to look like here in the U.S. after federal decriminalization or, or legalization for the cannabis industry? I think we're going to see the fall of the MSOs. I think that's going to be the very first thing. I think they'll hold on and they'll keep dumping money and they'll basically, for lack of a better term, fraud or steal their way into surviving for a little bit of time. But I think what we're going to see is the small to medium operators using the one thing that federal legalization will give them in their favor. And that's traditional unit economics, producer and consumer states, the ability to do the things that the MSOs claim they do already immediately, because it's already happening on the black market. So a, a true federal decriminalization will allow that fire Cali bud to pop up in New York City overnight. And we don't need MSOs or Altria or some large company to do that. You just need it to be legal because it's already happening illegally. And I think most of these MSOs are set up in a way to only function in the broken system that they effectively created for themselves to profit right now. So I think that's where we start seeing this community that exists completely separately from the industry become the next wave of industry. And I think another big one is going to be when federal legalization happens, where do we fall on home grow? And if I'm going to draw a parallel to another industry, here's one of my favorite things to talk about. The alcohol industry was effectively what we have in cannabis for 84 years post-alcohol prohibition. And in the last 10 or 15 years, What's the one thing you can find in every American city in the alcohol industry? Well, it's a craft brewery. It's a craft distillery. It's a craft beer bar. It's a local entity that uses local production and things like that. And I think that all started with homebrew because homebrew or homegrow, if we're talking about cannabis, allows for innovation. Innovation allows for entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship allows for the creation of true wealth for people who are otherwise shut out of it. And here's a fun statistic I read recently. Up until 1962 or 1972, I don't remember which, something like 84% of wealth, millionaires in the United States, were generational wealth that was handed down. And since that point, it has completely flipped on its head and something like 79, 80, 81% of millionaires in the United States came through entrepreneurship. And I think that is where it really starts, is the home grow, the home cultivation, the home brewing, the ability to do it on a private and personal scale and play around and perfect your craft and then bring it to the masses. Yeah, I think that's so true. You see it, you see it in software, you see the lack of innovation at really large tech companies while they, they get blindsided by small companies that come up with something really ingenious. And then of course they just get bought up. And, but I think that's a great way for allowing home gardeners, home growers to be able to craft their own experience. And then, yeah, if it takes off and you're like, oh, like all my friends love my bud, I've got a great strain here. I've been developing for five years or something that's going to create a lot more economic opportunity for people. And I think that 
the states that allow for that, you're going to see a lot more innovation come out of. They're going to make a lot more money. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see once federal legalization or decriminalization goes through, which states take a really heavy handed approach, uh, because unlike a lot of other things we've legalized, everything here has been piecemeal. So we actually have had, this is a place where we've let states effectively be the laboratories of democracy for cannabis. So we do have a really good sense of some best practices. We know what works and we know what doesn't. We obviously know overtaxation does nothing but boost the black market. It doesn't protect patients. It doesn't protect consumers. Whereas if you're going to go with a lighter touch, you can make more money if the taxes are lower. I mean, you get more people like onboarded into the mainstream regulated industry. Absolutely. Without question, I I think the ability for people to do it at home, the ability for them to continue just being your average everyday citizen who has a slightly different interest in something than making them a criminal is crucial. And I think it's a big lie that is told by major cannabis producers who are protecting their stake in the market that they say, oh, if we allow home grow, it's just going to allow the black market to flourish. And I think the opposite is actually true. I think forcing people underground is going to cause a black market boom, something like we see in the Florida cannabis industry, for example, whereas you see a sharp decrease in black market activity somewhere like Oklahoma, where it costs $2,500 to get a license and go for it. Try it. Do the best you can. Yeah, I was there for Canacon uh, a couple of years back in Oklahoma City, and it, it was pretty wild because they just, it was open season on licenses. Pretty much anyone could get in on it and they were just kind of like, hey, give it a try, sink or swim. We'll see what happens. And then I think it was like, when, when I was there, they already had like 5,000 licenses. They were producing like 500 a week or something at one point. It was just, it was the wild west. But eventually like that's how you find who's going to be the best at it, who's going to get it figured out, because growing cannabis is no easy task, especially indoors, when there's very few people who've unlocked like real success on that side of things. So I think just letting people do what they're going to do is the best way to find who are the best actors, who are the best growers. And then we'll, of course, see we'll see growers pop up in every state. Then you'll start to see the growing shift towards certain places, just like most of our food is grown in California. You'll see those same sorts of shifts and find like little hot spots of, oh, yeah, maybe people growing indoors in Cincinnati or something like it turned out there's some little amazing collective of mid-sized cities across the country that can really make a name for themselves. I still think the best cannabis grower in the United States is someone that nobody knows their name yet. He's the guy growing in his closet or growing in a warehouse on his farm or something like that. I think the, or she, I should probably be more clear with that. I think the best cannabis is currently not being grown by any legal operator. And obviously that's anecdotal, but it's also probably true. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of people that would agree with that. So you got your start professionally in the Marines as a military police officer. And I'd love to know like how that experience prepared you to work in the industry and also why you think the cannabis industry is a great fit for veterans and what veterans interested in the cannabis industry should do to break in. Ooh, this is one of my favorite topics. So I, I never actually got to be a military police officer. I was one of those guys that got lined up and shipped off to Iraq to do a totally different job despite going to military police school. So I'm not sure the cop part necessarily has played a role. But I do believe that the top-down leadership, the chaos of combat, the kind of uneasiness of military life plays very well into 
the world of cannabis. Cannabis is the only job I've ever had outside of the military where I woke up every day not having a clue what was going to happen. And I think something that people don't talk about enough is that as veterans, we're often put as the poster child for legalization. Oh, they need it for PTSD. Oh, they need it for pain. Oh, they need it for that. And sure, we do. I, I do myself. You know what I mean? I'm a disabled veteran and I'm not afraid to admit it. I have uh, a terminal lung condition. I wear hearing aids. I'm in my 30s. Those are things that people my age aren't normally dealing with. But I think the other side of this is that I know veterans at every level of cannabis from trimmers and bud tenders through CEOs and board members that are absolutely crushing it. Because at the end of the day, as veterans, we embrace one simple concept, improvise, adapt, overcome. That's it. And I think that's something that is much needed in cannabis and underutilized as of yet. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's such a, a different level of reliability in your average veteran where it's like, hey, we've been through some shit that most people, unfortunately, never have to see in their lives or experience. But so, so anything the cannabis industry could throw at you, it's the mil serving the military, especially being deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else. It's, it always reminds me of Fight Club in the scene where he goes back to his office and he can't hear his boss. He's talking to that like peanut adult voice. And it's, oh, it's turned down the volume on the rest of life. And, and I think that's something the deployments especially do. And so when you get in somewhere, like the cannabis industry where, yeah, it might be a little more chaotic. You might not know what's going to happen. You might not know what regulations are going to come down the pike and totally throw your operations uh, into a tailspin in some different way. And you've got to reassess things. And I think as veterans, we're really well prepared to take on those challenges. Oh, man, I say it at least once a week because filling the role I do and, and doing due diligence and calling out bad actors I get my fair share of hate. I get threatening messages or angry emails or stuff like this. And I think I've said it a few times publicly. Do you really think I'm afraid of some white dude that went to Harvard in boat shoes and a suit jacket when I was 18 years old and had to go deal with the Taliban? Like, really? Come on, guys. You're not intimidating. It's not going to get you anywhere. And the worst thing you can do is sue me. And you're not going to get anywhere because everything I say is true. And it's verifiable and it's backed up. And the truth is the end and, and end all be all of situations like this. I, I, I think we as veterans have a unique ability to stand up to anything because it's none of it compares to what you end up doing at 18, 19 years old in the sandbox. Totally. Yeah, it always cracks me up whenever I have experiences like that or see other people do that to veterans. And it's just you're just a... You're like a random person, like you're not scary. It's, we've done crazy stuff. We've seen crazy things, horrible things. And it's something you're doing in a boardroom or like a retail operation dispensary is, you know, it's just a joke in comparison. But it, yeah. I had a guy threaten me up. at one of my very first cannabis jobs. He's like, do we need to go outside and fight? And I remember looking at him <laughs> and I was like, if we have to, can I take a drink of water first? Do we got to do it right now? And he's, I'm mad. I think we should, you're being disrespectful. And I'm like, what? I'm sorry that I'm not reacting in an aggressive way to your hyper masculinity and your need to prove <laughs> yourself. I don't have anything to prove. I know who I am and I've known who I am for a long time. And I love the plant and I love the community that was here before that. And of course, I love making money, but I think there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And it's something that I try to instill in every one of our clients, regardless of what role I'm playing at the time. It's to find that niche and be unapologetically yourself, no matter what. Uh, couldn't agree more.
So I'd love to know who are your favorite people working in the cannabis industry today, whether it's growers, CEOs, journalists, like literally anyone that's working around the space. Oh man. So Leslie Engelking, she's the CEO and founder of Focus. I absolutely adore her and she is a sense of right and wrong for me. She's a soundboard and she's a person that I heavily rely on when I'm having a bad day and don't feel like my fight is worth it. I think another one would be Dr. Gregory Gerdeman. He was one of the very first people I really interacted with in the cannabis space that kind of took me under his wing and helped me understand the science side of things. Of course, my partners at Good Ideas, Jody and Alex, they are both human beings that really do the hard work that allows me to run around to be myself all day. I think obviously Michael Wagner and Pablo Quiroga, the guys that brought me on at Multichain Ventures, I think are doing some amazing things. And while they're not necessarily cannabis people, they're allowing me to really take on a mantle to change the world using their technology and their ability to deliver killer blockchain stuff to people. I think Matthew Harold, Matthew O'Brien, we just did a big podcast yesterday. And so they were some of the best people I've ever worked with and some of the most kick-ass marketers I've ever had the pleasure of sharing a stage with. I don't know. I, I literally could keep going on this list for a long time. Greg Fry, he's the editor of The Bluntness, a cannabis media organization. And he's somebody I talk to all the time to make sure that I'm on the right path and very much helps me stay relevant to the things that are going on and has very much become a sounding board for me. I, I know I'm missing people and I'm sorry for them if they're listening that I didn't name you. I, I just did a big post on LinkedIn where I named 40 people that I thought were super kick-ass. And I'm sorry I wasn't prepared for that question to be able to name them in a list. <laughs> oh, it's all good. I'm gonna have to check that list out, get them all on the show. So we'll have the influence. It's all good. All you got to do is shoot me a message, man. I will highly encourage them to come on and have a chat. I, I consider myself fortunate to have some of the best, brightest, and most moral people in my corner on a daily basis. It's a great place to be in. So building on that, what has been your favorite experience in the cannabis industry? Ooh, so I think it's a three-way tie. I'll be very honest. I'm a nobody from nowhere. I grew up in rural Virginia in a 700-square-foot house where I had to share a bed with my adopted brother when he was working night shift, and we had to play shift role. So doing really cool big things like uh, the yacht party we got to be part of sponsoring for U.S. Cannabis Conference was one of the most wild and surreal things I've ever gotten to do in my career. I think when we threw a anti-Rick Scott rally in Florida, and we had major politicians and backing <laughs> from both sides of the aisle. And I actually got to ride on top of an LED truck with the Buds for Vets logo on the side when I was still their public relations director and kind of play Pied Piper around Lake Eola Park in Orlando was a crucial and killer thing. And then finally, the day I got to go visit Shenandoah Hemp Company, here in Virginia, they were one of the first kind of large scale hemp producers. And it was the day I got to stand in the mountains I grew up in, in the little town that I grew up in where I never thought I would see weed growing. And I got to stand in a multi-acre field of cannabis. And yeah, it was hemp, but it's all the same plant. And it was just a moment where I really got to appreciate the power of the industry and the movement that we're part of because I got to see something I never thought I would see, at least not in the legal sense. Oh, love that answer. So powerful. So how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I don't believe in failure. I think failure is an opportunity to learn. 
if I have to go back to anything, I listen to a two minute and 12 second clip from Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL, where he thinks that any setback or failure should be met with the word good and talked about in a way that is an opportunity for growth. I think if I ever made any major failure, it was accepting a job with a company I didn't do enough due diligence and vetting on ahead of time and really putting my effort into helping them before I realized they were terrible. And I won't name names, but anybody can go look at my resume and see who that was if they really want to know. Past that, I think I've, I've been very fortunate to avoid large-scale failures in my cannabis career. It's a great answer. I definitely feel the same way. There, there's no such thing as failure. They're all learning experiences. It's all just the mindset you apply to it. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? So the one I'm reading right now is rather influential. It's called The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I'm reading a specific version of it translated into American English. So I think I'm a naturally cynical person, though I, I think I fall into that category of like friendly neighborhood, cheerful nihilist or cheerful cynic rather than than a true cynical nature, but I think attempting to adopt that stoic philosophy into my life in a little bit better way has been really meaningful. If I had to pick another one, I'm currently, I just finished the Harvard Business Review on blockchain, and I think that's given me a much better understanding of some of the more nuanced detail in the blockchain crypto space than I had before. I understood it, but it was really a, a deep dive for me. And then finally, I would have to say Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And that was the first philosophical book I ever picked up. And I read it probably 10 times while on deployment. And I'm a motorcycle guy. I worked for Harley before cannabis. So it really put things in a layman's terminology for me to really pick up the lessons learned from it. Definitely some great choices. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? Oh man, heroes. I honestly don't know that I have any. There are plenty of people I've looked up to in my life. I think I would include some of those people I just said in my best people in cannabis in my world. My dad's a pretty big hero of mine. He's one of the hardest working people I've ever met. And he's one of those people that has always instilled a sense of duty into me. If I had to pick another one, it would be my past mentor, Bill Monroe. He unfortunately killed himself thanks to some problems in the cannabis industry and some of the things that happened to him. But he was the real first person in cannabis who took me under their wing when I didn't deserve it and, and taught me the ropes of business and how the industry worked and things like that. If I had to pick one more, it would probably be my wife because she puts up with my shit and lets me be me all day and really keeps me in line when I'm not doing the things I should be doing. It's hard to ask for anything more than that. And it's definitely the, those people that, yeah, take you under their wings when you don't deserve it, or they give you a recommendation you don't deserve that puts you in another stratosphere. It's, it's something that's been transformational in my own life and it's something I always seek to do for others anytime that you can, because that can just make all the difference. It's not just who it's, who knows you and who can go to bat on your behalf and open up those doors for you that you can just, yeah, put you in a whole different ballpark. I agree. It's something ever since Bill passed away, I have taken at least two or three hours a week in, in different blocks to meet with total strangers who are struggling with the industry. Maybe they're trying to break in, maybe they're trying to do something. And I hope it's me living that legacy that he set for me.
You know what I mean? And, and it's something I, I wholeheartedly believe in is helping people find that niche or that person to be under their wing. And I know I'm not that person for everybody, but I'll be damned if I don't try my hardest to find them that person and be the temporary space for them to find a true mentor that can take them to the next level. Oh, I love that. It's, you know so important, so influential. So in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Oh, man. Using my calendar in a way that structures my day is a big one. I think as a belief, it has been the adoption of the nap. So the non-aggression principle or a voluntarist mentality on my interactions with other people. Yeah, I guess that would be as, as complete of an answer as I can give for that one. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I've always been a spontaneous person. So getting into to calendaring has, has been a struggle, but now that I'm having lots of podcast interviews and my calendar's filling up, I'm like, okay, thank God this exists because I don't know what I'd be able to do without it. But I live I, yeah. off my calendar. If it's not oh, on my calendar, yeah. it doesn't exist. Oh, absolutely. Same. Absolutely. And I love the non-aggression principle. It just being able to go and look at the world somewhat people sometimes think it's naive or put it on rose colored glasses or something. But if you just imagine that people don't have ill intent right out of the gate until proven otherwise, it, I think it definitely gets you a lot farther and it just helps your, you have more peaceful and productive interactions with people. So it's rather than being competitive, it's how can we be collaborative? I don't believe in competition. I don't have competition. I have potential collaborators, full stop. I love that philosophy. So what are some bad recommendations that you hear in your profession and area of expertise? So the worst one I hear is just take a step down from where you're at in your industry to get into cannabis and you'll be able to work your way up. I think that goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier about the grass ceiling. I think there is a, a protectionist layer where the terrible leaders at the top have put equally terrible people in those medium to high levels. And those people are so afraid that they're going to lose their job, that they keep the truly talented people pushed down and kept out and, and basically stifled. So I think that's one I hate. Do not take a step down if you're interested in coming in the industry. Just make the leap and figure out how to transplant your skills because we're all transplants. Very few people have been hooking water up to the grow house for 40 years since they were eight years old. Most of us came from another industry and I guarantee you your skills translate. I think the other one is when people suggest that, oh, you don't you don't need that COA, you can trust me or any of those things. I, I think it's been very much a lesson of at the minimum, trust, but verify, if not verify again, and then verify one more time before you trust. Oh, totally. Some great, some great things there. So when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? What kind of questions do you ask yourself? How do you process those things? So the first thing I do is smoke straight up, not cigarettes, weed, obviously. So that's my number one thing that lets me get grounded. The second thing I do is I go outside. I hate being inside. I hate being cooped up. And I, I'm a big fan of basically doing what my wife has forced upon me that I've learned is a good thing for me is to just sit the fuck down and relax for a few minutes because nothing, nothing in this world is so pressing that I must handle it immediately. Totally agree. 
So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Two, I'm going to give two answers to that. So one of them would be a picture of me taking a bong rip with the smoke coming out and my feet up on a boardroom table as just a blatantly self-promotional bridging the gap from bong to boardroom being my little like personal tagline thing that I would just love to see because I try to embody those two things put together. <laughs> I think if it was not that, then I would love to see a billboard about how home grow is the future something along the lines of home grow or bust or let my people grow or something silly and fun but has a real true meaning awesome i love that brett this has been a really fun and enlightening conversation i'd love to have you back in the future because i feel like we could talk for hours and hours so this brings me to my last question what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you oh the kindest thing anyone has ever done. I, wow, I don't know. I, I think much of what my wife does for me and, and putting up with my shit and forgiving the stupid things I've done or my mistakes is right up there with the kindest thing anyone's ever done. I think outside of that, it would be something like Bill, some something like what Bill has done did for me when he was still around. And that was to give me time I didn't deserve because he saw potential in me I didn't know was there. Oh, great answer. So thank you so much for joining me today, Brett. It was a really a pleasure to get to speak with you after following you on uh, LinkedIn, engaging with you there for so long. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you for having me. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Sol, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.